Welcome to Brewing It Over with Cup North, the show that gives you the chance to deep dive into the topics shared in the content program at our events. From social to consumer to sustainability issues, there's something for everyone. I'm Hannah Davis. And I'm Grace Talbot. And today we're joined by James Gard from Heart and Graph Coffee Roasters, who delivered a talk titled, Why Does My Coffee Taste Like That? at last year's Manchester Coffee Festival. James Gard started Heart and Graft with business partner Sean in 2014, and they have grown to be Manchester's biggest coffee roastery. With a mission to make coffee fun and approachable, James loves telling coffee stories and connecting people to the miracle of beautiful coffee grown in faraway places. And just before we welcome James to the podcast, don't forget if you want to listen to his talk from Manchester Coffee Festival, hang on until the end of the podcast to hear the full recording. And talking of Manchester Coffee Festival, we couldn't deliver any of our projects without the incredible support of our partners. Here's an advert from the one and only Oatly. At Oatly, we love jingles almost as much as we love oat milk. And we put a lot of time and effort into making them really, really beautiful. Welcome, James. Hello, hello, hello. Hello, Hannah and Grace. Hello. Hello, hello. How are you doing? Good. Yes, uh, as it is hot at time of recording, it's it is uh, the, it the is. sweltering week, and so we're in a hot grocery, <laughs> but it's good. We like it. We feel very close to our coffee growers, maybe a little bit tropical. <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's very very muggy where i am so i feel quite damp right now in this recording <laughs> also it's the yeah. excitement of chatting with you today obviously that is, Ab- is coming absolutely out. Yeah. yeah why wouldn't you uh, of course yeah <laughs> <laughs> now we want you to feel nice and relaxed and we want our lovely listeners to have a an opportunity to get you get to know you a little better we have some really very difficult questions to ask you to serve those purposes are you ready i, mean, I genuinely don't know what these are so uh, yeah <laughs> Okay. coming in hot number one are you ready what's your coffee order oh cappuccino <laughs> cappuccino love a cappuccino all right yeah. all right right follow-up question right i'm breaking the yeah. script here but uh do you have chalky sprinks on your cappuccino no 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 depends if it's speciality no if i'm somewhere okay. like a cafe rouge and it's my only option yeah i'll go chocolate sprinkles okay <laughs> Some Chucky Springs. No offense, nice. Cafe I think yeah, you're yeah, the first yeah. person who said cappuccino. Oh, nice. But I do love a classic cap, you know, strong little bit of creamy milk on there. It's just a good thing. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm, I'm on board with that, particularly today. I feel like I could go for one too. Okay, wonderful. We'll get our fabulous barista, Hannah, if you could uh, do us two cappuccinos, actually, I think today, please. Um, and while we wait, and we're in our magical dream coffee shop waiting for our cappuccinos to come, James. What music is playing? Oh, Latin salsery, a little bit of like sort of chilled bit hip hop, but in a very chilled Latino kind of way. Yeah, that's what's playing. I can hear it. There's a lot of vibes there. <laughs> like Latin, hip hop, yeah. salsa, chill. Yeah, chilled hip hop, Latino. Yeah, that'll do. <laughs> nice, nice. You're winning for unique answers so far. Definitely. Okay. <laughs> Last one. I think this is the best question, but I also think this is really difficult to answer. So, what is your most memorable cafe experience mm. or coffee shop experience or one of? Different categories. Monmouth Coffee, probably like in about 2005, six, but it was because it was the first time I'd gone somewhere and saw the crazy, because I was a, um, I'd been trained as a Costa Coffee Manager and it was very precise. It was like seven grams, 14 grams, and that was your throw. And then some uh, uh, guy or girl was behind the bar and was like, like three dosing. And I, in my head, I was like, what are you doing? Like, no, how do you know how much coffee's in the portafilter? But they made a completely delicious, it was the first flat white I'd had actually. And oh, then yeah. also at Monmouth in Borough Market, they have all those like, um, all the coffees like all laid out in the boxes. So you've got like 20 odd different, and it was like Costa Rica, Guatemala, Ethiopia. And like my head was like, I love this. So yeah, that was probably like impactful in terms of like um, doing that. I think yeah. like your first sort of foray into what turns out to be the enormous never ending rabbit hole that is specialty coffee. And you know what? It probably That was probably one a, a stage of it. And I'd gone, I mean, I'd started making steaming milk and doing lattes in like 98 
when it literally was some people like what's a latte because I, I worked full-time and started managing a bakery cafe in southampton and then right. it was all like uh, you know your frothy coffees but people would be coming in and seriously it was like friends had only just really started and so and sometimes you'd steam milk and you think why was that a good one no idea no one really knew because like oh the milk's nice that time and yeah it was it was quite innocent you know it was kind of like yeah. a, some time of coffee and and yeah so it kind of just gradually grew from there in terms of the whys and the whats and well why does that taste like that and why does that happen and just sort of gradual journey of those sorts of questions I suppose. Amazing <laughs> I was gonna say that just feeds really nicely into the topic you covered at Manchester Coffee Festival why does my coffee taste like that like starting to ask those questions um obviously for you it started with why did the milk work that time but you went so much deeper into the subject at Manchester are you happy to just give us like an overview of the talk that you did at Manchester tell our lovely listeners what yeah. to expect at the end of the poddy? Yeah, I think my take on it for this particular one was this whole thing of like, well, why does my coffee taste like that? A lot of the um, approach that we take really is, I think there's a lot of stuff we take for granted in specialty coffee. If you've been in specialty for a long time and you take for granted some of the sort of, some of the knowledge that you've had or you've learned over the years. So, and things to do with um processing and how the coffee has been grown and how that affects flavor we might just have kind of an assumption that people understand that and what i found is there are some seriously smart people out there who might just not know that thing about coffee yet you know and i think sometimes i hate the whole sort of gatekeeping approach to to coffee knowledge how people like to keep oh well, don't you know that thing that i know about and it's like no that's just it's just no good it's just yeah. no good being like that yeah you know, there is the kind of school of thought where it's fun to belong to an exclusive club that you know the rules of, and some people do enjoy that. But our view is the more speciality, the more people get into speciality coffee and can approach it and can get into it and can love it, then it's just better for everyone. Just I like to just sort of throw out stuff that's like, okay, well, what are we assuming people know? So things like processing. So, you know, I like to do take three different uh, examples. So I did it the previous year and did it last year as well, which will take three different coffees. And then how have they, how has what the farm has done at the producer end, how has that influenced the flavor? So why does my coffee taste like that? What have they done that's influenced the flavor? Because it all starts with them. You know, it's not, sometimes that's like a cheesy token nod to that kind of thing. But seriously, without the work that is done at origin by the producers, you know, consistently year in, year out through all sorts of conditions, we wouldn't have these beautiful things that we have. And our job is to just not ruin it. Like, that's the view. We just have to not, don't spoil the coffee. You know, we do training here sometimes and we'll say like, right, it might have taken like 300 hours for this coffee to get to you. You get it for its last 30 seconds. Uh, don't, don't, don't ruin it. Sure. Don't ruin it. <laughs> but don't ruin it but no so the talk was really looking at different um processes that farmers might have used producers might have used origin that have influenced how the coffee tastes like in your cup at the end of it so yeah that's the basic idea take three different farmers and three different origins and different styles of producing coffee and how that's influenced what it tastes like amazing is that something you do with all of your coffees then like take the time to really look deep into what the farmers have done you know like a, a couple of the examples in your talk were that um the farmers have kind of radically changed the soil quality in order to be able to grow better coffee is that yeah. something that's yeah you look at with all of the coffees that you buy yeah some of that um i think no it's just a happy sort of it's it's a happy magic moment where you get all that combination together we do like to look for organic coffees where we can where there's been a lot of natural so a lot of biodiversity which has influenced flavor so we do look for those wouldn't necessarily buy a coffee exclusively just for that reason but i think one of the main um reasons that has become a big thing that we look for is our, our relationship with uh the cooperative in honduras in la paz la paz in honduras uh comsa cafe organico marcala and we've been buying from them for the last sort of six years. Uh, our good friend, Sweeter, first introduced us. There's a whole story about that. That's a different story for a different day. But we ended up basically getting into a relationship. And it's one of the only two origin trips um, I've ever done. And that was, I am, must be due a new one, because that's like six years ago now, which is mental. But, um, but it was very transformative, going and seeing their vision and hearing about their vision for organic farming and seeing their setup and how they've sort of processed that in stages and the transformation it's made to, to farmers, like soil, the land, 
the area around the farms as well just impacted us like a lot and to see it at scale and to be so effective was like oh you can really produce high yield awesome tasting coffee with pure organic methods and that was a real like well shouldn't everyone be doing it like this you know because you'd heal the earth basically if everything was grown <laughs> like this it would be the earth would be better so i think that just the logic of it is just very appealing in that sense and then yeah with with the it was great hearing the story of um uh so the first story we told about was uh indian coffee the ratnagiri estate coffee and the awesome work done to revitalize um ashok patre's dad's farm the awesome work that he did to, to revitalize the soil on that farm as well was just an awesome project and it not only is great coffee grown but the biodiversity is back you know and the idea that gradually you can reintroduce you know he says oh yeah we've got giant flying squirrels now and i'm just i, I want to go there just for that you know and you know <laughs> you're not alone it's this wild yeah coming back to the farm and just what an awesome i don't know disney-esque idea of, of like the earth being healed and, and more creatures and more plants growing and therefore coffee being tasting better yeah um but just think that's an awesome story so wherever we can and it's quite good because we buy the two sort of terms of volume coffee so like most roasteries you know our house coffee our house espresso will be the coffee that we do most volume of and um so what's nice is that uh, the consa coffees from honduras and the indian coffees tend to be what we buy the most volume of so we feel like we can you know at least count on like eight percent of our coffee being sort of um, either organic or de facto organic so either classified organic or it's grown organically just hasn't got the certification but yeah we enjoy being part of that process i think and using it as much as we can and ashok came to manchester you said in the tour which is amazing got to try yeah. their coffee in i've actually just forgotten the name of the bar but tell us tell us about that trip what that was like <laughs> no again just honestly we just ride these brilliant waves of serendipity through the coffee life uh but it was just um so we buy that coffee from uh the the, the coffee importers now known as Cavoya, who've changed names a few different times but it was it's howard barwick uncle howard as we call him uh who um he he's he's been on a project working with some uh, estates in india uh, a few years now and one of the estates he was working really closely with was uh, uh ratnagiri estate and the so the owner of that farm, Ashok, and his wife Divya, and um, I can't remember the name of their daughter. Who's with them? Sorry, their daughter. Um, but uh, they were came over. I think they were visiting Milan, so they went to Wilder Coffee in oh, Milan cool. last year. And then so they were over in Europe, so they popped over to see the guys at Cavoya in Liverpool. And I think Howard was like, "Oh, we've got a spare spare day before we go to the airport." And um, we were like, "Brilliant, yeah, bring them over." So we just had this awesome moment of having hearing literally from Ashok and Divya about how that story had happened on their farm and their sort of trials and tribulations of, of um, producing that coffee um, and what they've gone to sort of raise the quality, the things they've done to raise the quality of the coffee. And then, yeah, what's really awesome as well is that um, that coffee, their, the Ratnagiri, their washed coffee that they have is used as a single origin espresso in a bar in Manchester, Smithfield Social. And they go through a lot of coffee. That is their coffee. So, well, let's nip down there. You know, we've, we've chatted the roastery. Let's pop down to Northern Quarter. And so we went down um, and just all sort of sat in and uh, had espressos. And they were loving it because it tasted great. Because um, the team do their, a great job of, um, of making it taste amazing. And they were like, oh, it's really sweet. It's delicious. And so to be there and part of that was like a really satisfying okay. sort of moment. As That's well. so amazing. Yeah. Did the baristas know who they were making the coffee for? Yeah, it was really sweet. Um, Finn, who's the head barista down there, she was like, really worked hard to get it dialed in. To be fair, actually, what had happened was that they, they'd run out of coffee and they'd put in an emergency shout to the roastery that morning, go, we're running out, can you get coffee down here fast? <sighs> we didn't know we were actually going down there with them, uh, with, with Ashok and Divya. And so there was a quick kind of like, quick Frankie um, sort of delivered the coffee down to Smithfield and it arrived about five minutes before we did. Um, <laughs> and so... Uh, They'd actually borrowed coffee from another bar we supplied down the road just to tide them over. So they were on a different coffee in the hopper. The coffee arrived and then about five minutes before we got there and then it was dialed in and it was tasting awesome. It, it all looked very smooth. And, oh, yeah, no problem. You know. But so it was nice to meet them. And, and then there's a, a really great chef um, who works down at Smithfield and they use the coffee in some different uh, elements, different dishes down there as well. Oh. They do like a, like a, a bacon jam 
down there and it's got sort of coffee element in it as well and so yeah so it was really nice like sort of people chatting around that kind of thing so yeah, it's cool coffee and bacon That's chat. Amazing. yeah i know i mean uh, what, what an amazing i know and i want that and i've just said it and i'm just like salivating <laughs> it's like, i now want coffee and bacon jam in my mouth i just want it now uh, okay how do you think that would have affected the barista and the chef then like because that's like a really unique moment for the for those people who are working with and serving that coffee to actually meet the producer of it yeah and it's yeah it's probably quite rare that that happens like what was their reaction yeah yeah Yeah, it was just it was a real you could tell it was like a humbling experience for everyone you know Mm. there's like a real appreciation of uh of the craft i suppose of the work Mm-hmm. And I think it's something just getting you quite deep, you know, like sometimes it's interesting. You meet someone and that's interesting, you know, and that's fine. And you have a little chat with someone interesting, but when you meet someone, sometimes you get more of a profound connection mm-hmm. and you could, sometimes you can tell there's a more of a profound connection when you meet, I don't know what it is about coffee. Is it just coffee or is it the same if you're a different elements of food production? I don't know, but there's something really profound about when you, you love coffee and you're really involved in the process and you meet someone who produces it just that sharing of that experience so i think yeah it was you could tell it was like a really significant moment everyone's all sort of smiling and and and, and like had hand hand patting is that, that's not a word is it hand shaking and shoulder patting uh, all that kind of stuff it was really sweet yeah, yeah. i mean that would stay with you forever i think i um I've never, even my barista days, didn't have the pleasure to do it. But I think, A, I'd feel under massive pressure to do it justice, like you say, but also would probably get emotional. I think that's the type of person I am. Oh, man. Honestly, you try going to a farm. I I, uh, I, I could never, when we went to Honduras, uh, we were walking around one of the farms, um, Miriam's farm. So it is related. The second farm we talked about is how Miriam, Pro, uh, Miriam Perez produces awesome organic coffee. And we were on her farm one time and some of the other guys we were with went for a sort of swim in the lake. And I was like, this is too emotional. I can't do that. I literally can't go and swim in the lake. So I stood there by the lake going, no one talked to me. No one talked to me. No one talked to me. I'm a man. I don't cry. Don't talk to me. But uh, Sweeter, our mate, came up to us and went, uh, she kind of looked at me and we're like, it is okay, I think. <laughs> and, 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 and that's what, <laughs> just like, I just sort of like, because it's just, it is incredibly yeah. emotional, you know, it just feels so vibrant. So, yeah, that is a profound connection. Yeah, passion runs deep in this industry, doesn't it? And it moves surprising moments and yeah. i think that's the wonderful thing about a uh, coffee community like we aren't we aren't perfect at it but when you do make those connections with people who really really love it you you respond to that and i think obviously i'm incredibly biased but i think uh coffee festivals are a great place where you see that like where you got to share this talk and talk yeah. about these experiences from so many different locations you're sharing that and celebrating it with the coffee community and then they were asking you questions. They were asking questions about the future of coffee and things you want to see. Is there anything else you want to add to that, that you want to see for the future of coffee, coffee processing, the next thing, or even just happening for the future it's, of heart and graft? You're allowed to talk about that too. Well, it's kind of all linked up, isn't it? A lot of it is about how do we get more people drinking the coffee? That's really the mission. Now, how do we make specialty coffee the norm? Mm-hmm. You know, so... How do we do that? That's that's always the question I'm kind of trying to work out. How do we grow it? And, you know, if I had a million pounds, we'd do a national campaign and we'd get everyone into it and we'd figure out a way of doing a mass marketing push on getting people drinking speciality coffee, you know, finding ways of doing that. It's such a new industry. I always say this. I think maybe, what is it, 25 years old, maybe, speciality coffee as as a, as a whole? And whereas coffee has been traded for hundreds of years before that, uh, how it's been done. And I think significant, really, what we're seeing as in speciality is this really satisfying to see more of a focus on producers. Mm. So, you know, the influence of what producers are doing their end. Again, one of the coffees I spoke about was the we had this um, this coffee process with cinnamon, which I know, Hannah, yeah, it's a love and hate coffee, which is what it should be, though. It should be a coffee where you drink it. Yeah. It's like if you get like a double IPA, <laughs> you know, really fruity like coffee. Some people in uh, beer... But some, and then you get these like cinnamon processed coffees, already like seriously fruit processed coffees. And some people are like, no, I don't like it. It doesn't taste like coffee. Yeah. Um, Sorry. But Hannah. some people go, no, you but like that's what it should ones. be like. That's what exactly what it should be like. There you go. It should be divisive. <laughs> well, that's it. It's not some bland product, yeah. though. So, therefore, what's exciting about that is it's been done at Origin, mm-hmm. you know, and 
I think the more of those coffees where we can really show that this is what the producers do, mm. by then being innovative and producers being really smart and then marketing coffees as well. You know, more and more from Origin now, we're seeing like really well marketed coffees. So, you know, we're getting some uh, more coffees from Colombia. I think I called that section, go home, Colombia, you're drunk. Yeah. <laughs> um, it was like some of the wacky stuff that's happening. But it's like you can tell that like reins are off. You know, for years, Colombia, and I mentioned this in the talk, for years, Colombia really was focused on um, volume. Washed, clean, Arabica at volume. You know, that was what the Coffee Association of Colombia was expecting. Uh, but then sort of back in the mid-2000s, prices are obviously going up and down, up and down, up and down, all over the place, so volatile. So I kind of think at that point, they kind of said, you know what, produce what you like. Just, just produce, just, you know, whatever you can do to help sustain the industry, grow the industry. I think as well, people get scared of the drop-off of people not wanting to do it anymore, like younger generations coming through who just don't want to be involved because subsistence farming is not really that cool. Like, you know, just about making ends meet isn't good enough. Um, so what's been really interesting now is that I think as coffees are marketed in a more kind of just end-user way, so you're actually creating a brand as a farm, as a producer, well, that's more appealing, you know. You've got more connection to it. So if you and me are farming out in like Guatemala, Honduras, wherever we are, we want to be connected to our customers. So I think the more we can get producers who are kind of creating a brand that's very personal to them, that's that's, that's like giving. And I think the more that we can sort of show producers there is a market for that, then that's really exciting as well because we can say, well, people care. People do want to know about the the why and the what and how that coffee is and why is it called guava banana. What do you mean? It's coffee. Well, just getting that out there more and more. How do we do that? You know, how do we make it more accessible? Um, that's always our, our vision. So as Heart and Graft, as coffee develops like that, we want to do more things to draw people into it as we can. So, yeah, just more of that, really. And, and yeah, you're definitely aligned with us here at Cup North with that kind of mission. And that's, you know, what we've always wanted to do yeah. since the start is is make specialty coffee more accessible yes. and for people to, like, understand the value of it and and why it's so, like, yeah. brilliant. <laughs> um, we need to get more people to go to coffee festivals. <laughs> oh, they're just brilliant. Yeah, people go, and I think what's really nice is people don't know quite what to expect if you've not been to them. It's it's uh -huh. quite um, it's a consumer. Lots of people who aren't in the industry go to Manchester Coffee Festival, and I think as a result, it's created really people who've got a store. I think, oh well, I'm not just going to do something to cater for the industry for specialty coffee. I'm going to just talk to yeah. people who want to learn more about coffee. Yeah. It's created a really interesting festival, I think, and that we really enjoy as well. So. We didn't pay you to say that. We oh, love it. No, no, it is true. But yeah, it's that community, isn't it? Yeah. People being passionate and uh, that's what drives this industry a lot of, you know, um, yeah, big time. Yeah. Yes. Uh, you mentioned the cinnamon coffee that was in your Crazy Horse branded bag last year. Is that what's yes, still in Crazy, in Crazy Horse? Yes. It's still in there. We still, we have, we have, we still have the cinnamon. We are moving as well into... Um, there's another another Colombian coffee as well. We were sort of sometimes when we try and decide. So we have like four categories, four categories of coffees that we put our origins in to help people connect to a particular style of mm. coffee. You know, so we do Mysterio and Prestige for kind of dark and heavy, like rich and heavy coffees. So we don't roast dark, but some coffees like a Sumatra, Papua New Guinea, India, they can taste dark without being dark roasted. So that's our Mysterio coffees are like coffee coffees yeah, really. we've got love shack which are kind of sweet and juicy coffee so your centrals and that's kind of like bit of body but some fruit in there as well and then we've got the chateau 76 coffees which are the more kind of elegant and complex so like a rwandan and robe or kenyan or ethiopia just something a little bit more complex and like like uh, elegant type coffee and then the crazy horse are the kind of more experimental and rare coffees that are the kind of slightly more sort of um, a divisive Oh, I'm not sure if I like that or not, type coffees. So we, we put, um, yeah, the cinnamon was in there. And from Miriam Perez, our friend and farmer in uh, in Honduras, uh, her natural process can be really boozy, fruity, full-on, funky coffee, which some people are a bit like, oh, I don't like it. Well, Or some people just absolutely love it. Like when we run out of it, there's like chaos at the roastery, you know, um, mm -hmm. people beating the door. And so we'll just like... <laughs> I don't know. Like, where's the natural? Stop chasing me around the festival. That did happen. It was weird. But um, uh, 
it is quite a device. So it, it never used to be a crazy horse, but it's because as people's tastes are developing, maybe we'll sort of, we can put that into that category. We have got some a uh, couple more Colombians um, as well coming uh, as well. Some beautiful, really kind of just crazy fermenty the, the guava banana from Virgil's coming soon as well as well, and the, and the black honey as well, which are just awesome coffees. So um, those will be arriving in the next sort of month or so to, to push the whole crazy horse. Oh, I know exciting. we love them. They're the fun coffees, you know. We have to do a lot of the house because house is important. Strong house business, you build a roastery on it. You can buy lots of great coffee from good producers. So it's an important coffee, that, because that's how you can buy volume. But then the fun stuff as well is like everyone gets excited about that. Like us as roasters, consumers, it's just kind of nice. So, yeah, Crazy Horse is still cinnamon, but that I think we've got one more roast of that. The, the Miriam's in there and then the uh, the guava banana will be in the next sort of next month or so. And will you have like um, sort of a conversation piece to go with it to communicate with your consumers? Like what makes this a crazy horse coffee? Why might this be yeah. divisive? Is there that kind of education? Yeah. There? And we, we need to, we always do more of it. This is a nice context to get me thinking like that. Cause I think sometimes the day to day getting on with being a roastery, you, you, you maybe forget about the sort of fun talking to people about coffee and uh, sort of element to it. Mm. That is important, as you say. And I think, I think giving people a chance to taste it is super important because as much as we can talk about it, you know that it's when you taste it that people can really decide. It's such a sensory thing, isn't it? It's a sensual sensory thing that you sniff and smell yeah. and slurp and, and pour on yourself. Don't do that. Taste. That's, yeah, no, no. Um, just uh yeah self-censorship so keep it just sort of um the the flavor is yeah you've got to get involved with it as much as we can talk about it how do you communicate what the flavors are and, and that can get people involved with it so yeah that is we're definitely going to do more of that yeah hmm. excellent we always love to get the old brains ticking don't we yeah I think it, you can take for granted. I don't know. There's so much we get on with, like I say, is the normal day-to-day job of being a roaster because we're only a small team, really. We haven't really got we haven't got a marketing department or um, people who do content or anything like that. It's just you know we all pitch in with doing different bits of being a roastery, and so and then sometimes you know I, I can allocate. So I spent some time we doing we've got a Rwandan coffee, the Fuji Ikizere on which we've just started doing. It's just gone on the website. And it, that was a brilliant thing to write about. Really interesting to research about and understand why. And, and it, suddenly you, re, you, you rediscover. Um, actually, I asked ChatGPT to write me, uh, write, write about a, a Rwandan coffee produced by a woman's cooperative that tastes like, you know, like the flavor notes. And, um, and it wrote this awesome thing. I said, right, write it in the style of a Shakespearean sonnet. And it, and it just wrote this beautiful thing. And it was just like, that's really moving. And it's really helped me like connect to this coffee. I know. And it, but one of my, one of my favorite lines was, uh, um, in every sip, a storm. Which I thought was like, that's a great line. That was produced. Like copyright immediately. I know, right? Uh, um, so I just think, yeah, but. I did so honestly. That's not used in any of the write up. I've not. I've not asked ChatGPT to do me a write up of that coffee. Although you could, it's tempting, but uh, it, it's actually quite good as an inspiration. So I think, yeah, using little tools like that. Who, who knows the future of coffee write ups? I bet we can spot stuff out there that people have done. It, we could sort of catch out. Hang on, that's not being written by you. That's an AI. Uh, we'll find out. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and before we wrap things up today the last sort of question on my list was to sort of ask you about the natural biodiversity of farms and you touched upon it a little bit in the talk about having like extra yeast and microbes in the air can affect the fermentation of the cherry can we talk a bit more about that uh, so what you know what's really important flavor development is um, the, having really good natural biodiversity around farms so the work that a lot of farmers are doing, not just from their own farms, but the surrounding mm. areas is super important. So a lot of farms and farmers producers look after the, um, the, the natural trees, the flora and fauna around their areas. By doing that, they're producing, they're creating uh, really opportunities for really great tasty coffee to come about because that natural, that air is full of natural yeast, natural microbes. And 
that's when you've picked coffee cherries straight away. When you picked a cherry, there's a hole because where you picked it, the stalk was in a bit. And straight away, yeast microbes can get into it. They start eating the sugars. The sugars start turning into other things. That's where your flavor comes from. So the more natural sort of microbes yeast there are in the air, then the, the better. And you get that by having natural sort of biodiversity around the area. So the more that's encouraged, the more that we buy those coffees, the more that we're encouraging that, um, the better as a whole, I think. I mean, who'd have thought we'd cover AI-generated sonnets <laughs> and also microbes in the same setting? It's a hugely complex sort of topic and you are excellent at spinning a yarn so i think now would be a great opportunity for you to kind of let our wonderful listeners know where they can find you if they want to follow up on anything you covered today or if they want to find out more about heart and graft so promote yourself go go heart go graft. you said it right are you from the north because it's not heart and graft it's heart and graft that's uh so no my dad's man so like, i knew there was something yeah. about you that was spot on that was uh, that's clearly what it is <laughs> so just head to the website all the stories and the coffees are on there so www.heartandgraft.co.uk i'll go to the insta at heart and graft and and just anything that we're doing that we're excited about will be in those two places and then yeah order coffee drink it if you're in manchester uh, look out for places that we supply uh, that have got fun stuff. Can be part of the uh, can be part of the fun. Amazing. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for joining us. Pleasure. It's been thank wonderful. You. Yes, thank you from me as well. Just a reminder to all you listeners: keep listening for the recording of James's talk from Manchester Coffee Festival last year. And we'll be back for another episode of Brewing It Over soon. Bye. I'm James Gard. I own started Heart and Graft Coffee Roastery, which is situated just behind you there, if you were happen to. Um, we are a coffee roastery based in Manchester. And so we roast and supply coffee shops, restaurants, bars, all sorts. Um, but we really literally just this cup north, this Manchester Coffee Festival, sorry. I've just launched our new brand, which is like the new Purple Hearts. Because we want to do really fun coffees because there's a lot of fun coffees starting to be produced by producers from different countries. And we kind of really want to get into that. So we kind of thought, how do we help people access it? How do we help people understand, buy, enjoy, brew coffees that they maybe haven't tried before? How do you even find out what coffees you enjoy. So the idea is I've got another 40 minutes-ish and then at the end of 40 minutes there's questions. Be thinking about things and then if there's anything you want to ask at that point then we can do that then I'll start my timer. Okay why does my coffee taste like that? So obviously coffee comes from beautiful places all over the world. That is what intrigued me when I first started getting curious about coffee, I've always worked in hospitality, fine food management. I managed Selfridges Food Hall for a few years. Um, I'd worked in managed coffee shops, but I was always fascinated about the story of coffee, like flavors from faraway places. Why does that coffee from Guatemala taste different from that coffee from Ethiopia? It tastes different from that coffee from Brazil. Why? Why? So that curiosity was just sending me off. And then as we've developed over the last 10 years as a roastery, we just, these are just like little pictures of um, coffees that we've bought from, from different places. And it's just all these different people. So the whole really energy of this talk is why does my coffee taste like that? Well, um, this is my very crude attempt at a slide. <laughs> it's like, I was just going mad with clip art you know, because all these different producers are doing brilliant things and the work that they do is where the flavor comes from. Yeah, we're coffee roasters. What we do sort of is the gateway and that connects you. Who, At the end of the day, you brew it. So if you're the coffee lover brewing the coffee, you finish the journey. But the journey starts, the flavor starts with uh, these guys at Origin and women. And because of that, they are crucial. In fact, without them, obviously, it doesn't work. Coffee used to be thought of as basic, a basic agricultural product 
And we, the clevy coffee roasters, we were where the magic happened. You know, coffee roasting. So the actual green coffee was just interchangeable. That, that didn't matter. You could buy this one, buy that one. It was a basic product. It didn't really matter because the magic happened when we roasted it. Then we give you the coffee because we do the magic. And then you take it home and then you should brew the coffee nicely how we tell you to. But as things have changed over the last 10 years where we've got individual farmers being recognized for the work they're doing at their farms, the flavors are just exploding everywhere um, as a result. And so it's not that so what they do does matter. Clearly, these are the three farmers we're going to look at briefly now. But these are the three farmers we're going to talk about now. Three different stories. Why does my coffee taste like that? Because of the magic of coffee. Without these, that, this, this thing starting here, that's where it all starts. Uh, the soil, incredibly important. The plant, incredibly important. How the roots of the coffee plant draw up nutrients into the plant. That therefore, the plant becomes the best plant it can be. Therefore, the coffee cherries become the best coffee cherries they can be. Therefore, the seeds of the coffee cherry, which are the coffee beans, they become the best, most tasty, most complex thing they can be. That's quite clear, really, isn't it? It's kind of it's quite obvious. And sometimes the most obvious thing are the things that are overlooked. But the plant it sounds a bit weird, but the plant understanding how to be the best version of itself, therefore producing the healthiest version of a plant, therefore producing the healthiest coffee cherry is going to be the most complex, the most packed with interesting chemicals and compounds in that seed. So the healthier the soil is, the more nutrients in the soil, the more there is going up into the plant. That's where flavor comes from. So why does my coffee taste like that? Well, it kind of starts here, really. Yeah, it's kind of a different way of thinking about it, but that is where it comes from. This guy here, uh, Ashok Patri, uh, from Ratnagiri Estate in India. We've been buying Indian coffee for about three or four years now, and uh, we're just finding it's blowing our minds with what we expect Indian coffee to be. There's a sort of expectation of Indian coffee. It's kind of just like quite dark. Like Monsoon Malabar is a kind of famous Indian coffee and it's kind of dark and maybe a bit musty. Um, and, you know, if you like a style of coffee that's, that's, that's quite dark and a bit sort of plain, and some people do like that, um, then that's what people have tended to think of what Indian coffee is like. But what we found is Indian coffees recently that are just flipping the script on all that. And this guy is doing some great work um, with his wife, We'll see her in a sec. This is the estate. This is Ratnagiri um, estate. It was actually his dad's farm. So um, Ashok, is uh, his family are very, very successful black pepper farmers, like massive. I mean, they're multimillionaires in India through black pepper farming. But um, Ashok's dad was a coffee farmer and had a coffee farm near where the black pepper farm is. And Ashok thought, well, I'll take this on. So he went to his dad's farm and they started looking at how do we grow good coffee? And so they started looking at the soil. The soil was an issue. And so um, Ashok had an Austrian scientist come and look at the soil. And he basically just said, uh, yeah, your soil's dead. Ashok, there's, there's, there's nothing alive left in the soil. So after 30, 40 years of using um, chemical fertilizers, spraying um, all over the farm, because that's the way that you grow coffee that was like what the norm was the soil was just dead there's nothing alive left in it so he just said well use it for junk or whatever but Ashok was kind of quite determined and this is one of the points I want to make the determination and the decision making of the farmers and the producers are why we have the flavors that we have so their commitment their decisions and their they say I'm going to commit to producing something that we're proud of that's what gets us the coffees that we get to roast, that you get to drink. That connection is super important. So Ashok committed, and, um, and I'd never heard of this process, but apparently you can buy tankerfuls, like container shipfuls of seawater that's been desalinated, but has everything else still in it. So it's still, the seawater is full of everything, plankton, microbes, bacteria, but obviously no salt. So Ashok bought like tankers of this stuff 
and then drenched the whole farm soil with it. And then obviously this kind of starts a circle of life. So drenched the soil with this basic sort of magic liquid and uh, it just started the life cycle again. So you start with bacteria, the bacteria grows, insects start to get attracted, birds start coming back to eat the insects, frogs, you know, the whole biodiversity cycle starts coming back. Now, the Ratnagiri Estate coffee farm looks more like this. These are actually pictures from the farm. I was trying to find a picture of the giant flying squirrels that they apparently have because like, I, I want to be on that farm. <laughs> I want to be like, whoa. So uh, Kieran and Nicole uh, are passing around a little bit of the, the Indian coffee at the Ratnagiri Estate. What you should basically taste is the TLC. You only get that sweetness. You only get that lightness, sweetness, complexity from really well farmed and processed coffee cherries. Yeah. Because the coffee cherries, you can see a few red ones in the middle there. They only come from the TLC of really well-grown coffee and really well-picked and processed coffee. We'll go into that. One of the innovative things, as well as, so, as, well as doing the whole, let's drench the whole dead coffee farm and bring it back to life with magical seawater. Um, I don't think that's the technical name for it, but uh, I'll have to dig into it in more detail. Um, as well as doing that, they also then worked on, right, the best coffee. You know when you go to a supermarket and you buy a plum and it's really hard and you bite into it and it's just uh, and horrible and just a bit, it's just not sweet. It's not ripe. It's the same with coffee cherries. What you need to make delicious coffee is ripe, sweet coffee cherries. So, the only way that happens, if you imagine a branch of coffee, like we see in the middle here, your coffee cherries are going to ripen at slightly different times through the harvest season. Your harvest season might last two, three, four months um, on this estate. And the, if you're a picker, if I'm a picker working in these coffee fields, the easiest way for me to fill the basket quickly and then go to Ashok and Divya, his wife, and say, there's my basket of coffee cherries. Can I have my money? The easiest way to fill the basket is to strip the whole branch at one time into my basket. You can imagine that. You've got a branch of cherries. You've got like light, you've got green, light yellow, darker yellow, red. You've got different ripenesses of coffee cherry on the same branch. So if I want to fill my basket quickly, I just strip off the whole branch into the basket. All off, all off, all off, and I'll go and take it. But if I do that, I'm selecting unripe, a bit ripe, quite ripe, overripe. I'm not getting just right. So this is how the pickers have been working for years. And um, what? Um, this is a really cheesy picture. Sorry, but I was trying to find a picture so I could show um, Divya. So that's Ashok on the end. He was really happy to be there. He just doesn't look it right now. I love being at Newton Heath in Manchester. It's my favourite place to be. That's that's what he was thinking. Um, Divya, his wife, um, she basically had to really re-educate the pickers on um, how to pick because the local pickers have been working seasonally for 10, 20, 30 years. And that's always how they've picked coffees. So you can imagine trying to retrain a lot of people who do that seasonally. They say, no, no, we don't want that. What we want is you to individually pick just the ripe red ones. Ashok was like, they won't do it. <laughs> he tried to teach them and he was like, they, they won't do it. And he was like, Divya, you have to teach them. And you have to talk, you listen to you. And she was like, okay. So Divya had to then like teach them. And actually what they did was say, we're going to pay you 40% more if you give us a basket full of just ripe red cherries. And, and that worked. Because not only were they getting paid more, they were getting paid for longer because obviously you have to wait for the right red cherries. It takes longer to individually pick each cherry than it would be to strip the whole thing. They got paid rather than just getting paid for two, two and a half months. They were paid for three or four months and 40% more as a result because they were just picking the right red cherries. Because they were doing that, the coffee, the cherries are sweet. The coffee is sweet. When we roast it, you get sweet coffee. 
Yeah. Do you like? Is it nice? Are we? Do you like the Indian one? The Indian one is your is your nice coffee. Your breakfast, not too challenging. Just a nice coffee. Um, I don't know how they're going with the pace of the brewing, but we are moving on to the next coffee now. Yeah, that's when they visited. Um, that's a really blurry picture from my iPhone. Uh, but um, oh, he looks a little bit happier now. Uh, Ashok, he's smiling because he's just had the coffee and he really likes it. So that's good. If you're local to Manchester, there's a bar in the Northern Quarter called Smithfield Social. And Smithfield Social uh, used the Ratnagiri as their house espresso. So um, we, we, they visited the roastery and then we nipped down to the Northern Quarter and we went into the bar and we had an espresso. And uh, they were just really buzzing about like, oh, the coffee tastes delicious. And that's just a really nice sort of circle for them to experience, I think. And great for the bristers and the chef and, and all sorts. Just the right red cherries. Uh, yeah, that's uh, right. So, next farmer. If we do get to the next coffee as well, then we'll we'll drink some of Miriam's coffee as well. Miriam Perez. So we've been in India. We'll now scoot back to Honduras. Um, Miriam Perez is a phenomenal woman. We've been buying coffee from. Uh, there's a cooperative in Honduras called Comsa. Cafe Organico Marcala. And it was started by about 20 families 25 years ago. And these 20 families thought, why is our soil looking like dirt? Our soil looks like dirt. We remember when the soil used to look rich and loamy and, and, and like dark soil. But now it just looks really like dirt. And how what's going on? So these families, they all go to agricultural college because they've got generational coffee farmers. They go to agricultural college and they were like, something's not right here. Why are we spraying it with chemicals and, and, and things? And it's really not helping. It really seems to be damaging the soil rather than helping. So they were like, well, let's just stop doing that. So they thought, well, what makes things grow really well? And then they looked at um, you know, what comes out of the back end of a cow. They thought, well, that seems to make things grow really well. And um, what happened? Why? Why does when the cow eats something, what happens inside a cow that what comes out the other end that's produced makes it really good for growing things? So what kind of fermentations, what kind of bacteria, what kind of processes happen? So that was their vision. So, well, why don't we just recreate that, but at scale? So that's how they came up with their organic fertilizer concept. Um, and it sounds a bit bonkers, but they can now produce over 20 tons an hour which I can't even figure out how much coffee that is, of coffee at their main mill. And they have over 1,800 farmers as part of the cooperative, all farming organically or transitioning to using organic methods. So it's not just two or three farmers using organic methods. It's pretty much half of La Paz region in Honduras, which can you imagine the impact in terms of like soil health and biodiversity? You talk about solutions to climate crisis. Well, go and see Miriam. Miriam was one of the so initiators of that process and uh, teaching education about organic farming. Uh, I've done this talk before about Miriam and then a couple of times it's been coffee farmers and they say, oh yeah, we know Miriam. She came and taught us. And I was just like, can you come and do the talk? Because I was like, you, you know more than me. So a lot of impact. A lot of what she does is uh, the natural processing of coffee. It's called natural process. We'll have a mixture of people who know a bit or not much or lots about coffee. So everyone's knowledge is at slightly different places. I know that. Um, but basically, Miriam's um, style of coffee is obviously the quality in terms of just the right red coffee cherries. But then it's called natural processing where you leave the cherries whole, drying on beds um, in the sun, and then the coffee cherries dry. And then all that kind of fermentation, you can imagine all the sugars in the fruit and um, all just sort of naturally drying over a period of time. And that creates uh, lots of reactions, lots of fermentation, lots of enzymatic reactions. Um, and, and that kind of just introduces a really fruity sort of complex flavor to the coffee. So that's the style that, that Miriam's had for, for a number of years. Now, because obviously she has been using like various methods to reintroduce biodiversity onto her farm that she we, we're having a, we're having a chat a couple of months ago and uh and she was saying about all the different animals they're saying they're seeing come back into the forests like around the farm and onto the farm and she was saying like i'm not going to do the accent for some reason but uh she was just sort of um they're just waiting 
for the apex predators to come back. And I was like, I don't know how excited I'd be to see a sort of puma uh, knocking around my farm. Um, but apparently that's like, you know, they're really excited to see the apex predators come back onto the farm. But, but that's how far the cycle of life is building back up in the forests and on the farms. Because of that, here's something a little bit geeky for you. And it does relate to why my coffee tastes like that. It's because these commitments to biodiversity, to organic methods, to improving soil health, all these things affect the flavor of the coffee. Because the more natural microbes and the more natural yeasts there are in the air, which we're permanently surrounded with, the more natural ones there are in the air, the more it's going to start affecting flavors. And in Miriam's case, basically on any coffee farm, as soon as you pick the coffee cherry, as soon as you pick it, there is a way into the cherry. Whilst it's on the branch, obviously it's like a closed loop. You know, there's, there's no way anything could get into the cherry, into the flesh, unless obviously it's broken and spoiled. As soon as you pick it, yeast and bacteria can start getting in, like good bacteria can start getting into the coffee cherry. So fermentation can start at that point. So you're starting to get all those reactions that start to create flavor. So the more of that there is around in the air, then the more flavor is going to be in the coffee. It literally does translate to what is happening in the coffee cherry flesh, which then starts acting on the seed, which obviously we call them coffee beans, but they should be called coffee seeds. But that would be confusing. Um, I suggested it once on a big coffee chat that I'm part of. I was shouted down by everybody. (laughs) I was like, no, no, they're coffee beans. Okay, but they are seeds of a cherry. That is literally what coffee beans are. Um, but all those natural flavors, enzymatic reactions happening on the seed, that's where the flavor comes from. Um, so lots of yeast, lots of microbes in the air, starts acting on the coffee flesh. That's where you start getting all those reactions. That's where the flavor comes from. So yeah, that's really good. Uh, so Miriam being boss, uh, boss lady, Miriam Perez. So you're going to get this coffee now and you're going to taste what Miriam does on the farm. This is her natural process. Uh, she does another thing called a honey process as well, but we won't talk about that now because we're kind of limited as to the things we can cover. Um, this is actually next to Miriam's farm. Uh, so all these all these sheets here laid out. This is another really important factor as well, because quite often when you're a coffee farmer, where you actually do this stage of coffee processing might be in a different place to where your farm is. So. If I've got a farm and I've got 20 hectares um, that my farm is on, I'm growing coffee generally on about five hectares of it. I m- might not have a big open space where I can dry my coffee. Also, if the altitude is too high, you know, it gets colder the higher you get. When I first started doing more work- walking, I was really surprised at how cold the difference was, like 1,000 meters and 1,500 meters was. I was like, it's really different, like 500 meters higher. Um, And it it very much is the same, obviously, uh, in coffee growing countries, where the coffee is growing, say, at 1,500 meters, like where Miriam's farm is. It's a little bit cooler of a climate, which is ideal for for coffee growing because it allows slow ripening. So if you're slightly warm during the day, 70, 75 degrees during the day, but because it's higher the, the altitude during night, it goes quite cold. But that's great for slow ripening of things. So that's why really good uh, coffee tends to be at, like, say, 1,500 meters and above. You can get great coffee from lower altitudes, but that's why higher altitude coffees can be really delicious. A lot of farmers will pick their coffee, pack it all into bags and sacks, and then take it somewhere else, and it's processed somewhere else. Miriam, all the processing for the coffee that you're, you've got now, have you all got some of Miriam's coffee? It's quite boozy. I was, yeah, that wasn't like, get your arse in gear. That was like, Miriam processes the coffee on her farm. So rather than taking the coffee somewhere else, this is like an area just next to her farm. So all the coffee cherries that have been grown and picked on her farm um, are all laid out 
So if you imagine this air around it is all full of the same yeast, the same microbes, the same kind of like tiny, tiny living organisms that have been with the cherries as they've grown are all sort of with the coffee cherries as they're maturing and drying. So basically you are literally tasting, you talk about tasting terroir, the taste of the land. That's exactly what you're tasting right here. Like that is, this is nothing but the, the love and care into the picking and the processing of the coffees that have been left out um, on the farm. So you're literally tasting that and that commitment to biodiversity, to organic methods that's created a life cycle which contributes to the flavor um, and probably shotguns. I don't know how you shoot a puma. I don't think you want to. That's terrible. Sorry, that was enough. I was just thinking what I would do if I was walking around. I know, I know it's all going so well. And then that 100% would not ever want to shoot a puma, can I just say. I was just thinking out loud as to what I would do if I saw... A big cat attacking me. <laughs> okay, I'm moving on. Um, we've done uh, Ashok and Miriam from Honduras. We're now going to go to the next section. I was thinking about calling this third section, Go Home, Columbia, You're Drunk, for reasons I'll explain. So make sure you finish your bit of Miriam you've got there. So we'll move on to Columbia. And this guy, just going to skip to my notes. So Ashok, the... Ashok Patre and Divya from Ratnagiri, we know well. Um, I love the story of how coffee went to India. Do we know that story? How coffee, the whole um, Baba Badan and how there was um, a whole... I've got time for a quick story. I keep looking at you like I'm accountable for my time and I'm not waffling. So I'm just kind of like, I've got about 10 minutes. Okay, fine. So I've got time for a quick story about how India coffee got to India. So basically... Back in the sort of 1700s, 1600s, when coffee, coffee was very big in the Persian Empire because you weren't allowed to drink alcohol. So um, caffeine being a stimulant was obviously very popular. So uh, the, the Persian Peninsula, so around Yemen, Aden, Saudi Arabia, massive consumers of coffee, really into it. And, and there was a, the Hajj, the trail that went from um, uh, uh, in Ethiopia, the one that we can't, Harar in Ethiopia, and went up to uh, Mecca in Saudi Arabia. That trail there, the Hajj, basically was like populated with people selling lots of coffee because people would be getting tired. So they'd be brewing coffee on that route. And there was a Sufi mystic called Baba Badan. And uh, he really wanted to take this coffee back to India, uh, where he was from. Uh, but he, they weren't allowed. There was, it was a very closely guarded cash crop. It was very valuable. Uh, so like the growers of coffee were like, under no circumstances are you taking this coffee back to that land. So what they used to do was basically flash. They have all the seeds, like tons and tons of seeds that they would brew. But what they would do first is they would heat it very quickly. So it effectively kill the seed so you couldn't grow it. And that's what that traditionally would used to happen. So coffee growers would bring all their coffee seeds, flash heat it so you couldn't grow it. You kill the seed. That was it. That's how they protected their, their crop. What Baba Budan sort of famously did was he, he stole. Now, the legend is that he smuggled them in his beard. Uh, they put coffee seeds in his beard. And, and by doing this, he smuggled the coffee seeds out of Yemen and, and, and over back to India. So whether they were in his beard or a little bag, I, I don't know. But, uh, but he literally took these seeds back to India, south of India in Karnataka. And that's where he planted the coffee seeds. And that's how coffee was introduced to India. Coffee's full of these stories. They all sound like made up stories from a film. And there's loads more of them and we can't do them now, but there are lots and you should look them up because they're brilliant. But yes, and it's still, it's now, that area is now, is Bababadan Giri. So anything with Giri on the end, I found out. So Ratnagiri means Pearl Mountains. So anything Giri means something mountains. So Bababadan Giri literally means like Bababadan's mountains. And that is a region in Karnataka in South India. And that is where the Ratnagiri coffee that you had that is where that one's from. And that South Coffee got to India. Right. That was a mad tangent. Sorry, but I just thought it was worth telling because it's a good story, isn't it? And we should, we should do stories. The final coffee is, yeah, from this guy. Felipe and his brother Carlos. Um, they're from a third generation coffee farming family. And uh, about in the mid 2000s, 2006, 2007, up until that point, the, the, the federation that basically ran coffee growing and export in Colombia were very prescriptive as to the sort of coffees you were allowed to grow and sell. 
So up to that point, uh, the Colombian Federation would say you're only allowed to sell sort of commercial uh, or if it's speciality, it has to be washed coffee. It has to be very prescriptive as the sort of coffee you're allowed to sell. Um, and so that's what a lot of coffee farmers were kind of geared towards as a business, as a coffee farm, as a coffee producer. You were very geared towards maximizing yield. So as much of that coffee as you can, because you weren't getting a lot of money for it. So you had to produce a lot of it in order to make a living. So that's how it was, you know, a lot of Colombian coffee farms, a lot of the regions were focused. But because of the nature of pricing and uh, commodity coffee price just going up and down and up and down, um, it was just a nightmare for coffee farmers, frequently costing more to produce the coffee than they, they got for it. But it was just a lifestyle. So it was, some people felt trapped in it. A lot of younger people thought, well, sack this. This is not worth doing. We're not going to. So what's the point in carrying on? Why would you? We have to literally spend money to grow this. And we get that. So the up and down nature of it meant that the Colombian Federation coffee, well, you know what? The reins are off. Do what you like. Go nuts. You know, I mean, not literally in those words. But effectively, they took the reins off and became much less prescriptive about what you could do. It opened up the market to smaller exporters, smaller kind of agents who would work with people like roasteries like us or importers or different importers around the world. Well, what are what sort of coffee would you like? What is going to sell? What should we as producers do to increase the value of our crop? Because it isn't just an interchangeable commodity that doesn't matter whether it's that one or that one. It matters. And we can influence the flavor of the coffee by various methods. And now we're allowed to. So how should we do it? So this started a whole kind of exploration. If you look into the different regions um, of, uh, of Colombia, it's phenomenal. The terroir, the potential, the altitude, the climate is brilliant. All sorts of regions, like eight, 10 different coffee growing regions that can produce stunning coffee. So it's kind of I wouldn't say it's untapped, but I think there's still more coming over the next 10, 20 years. We're going to see like incredible flavors. But one of the guys doing it uh, was uh, Felipe Osila, his brother, Carlos. Um, now, the reason I've done a big label like this is because sometimes you see coffee labels and you think, what the heck does that mean? Um, I, like I do with wine often. Um, and Frankie can help. Frank's really into wine. I don't understand what's on the label a lot of the time. So if you do understand the label and you've been in coffee and you know this stuff, cool. Uh, this is for people who are like, confused. Like, And to be fair, I'm confused by some of these processes that are now coming out of Colombia, which is why, go home, Colombia, you're drunk. There are so many exciting things happening in Colombian coffee right now to do with how the coffee is being processed. Right, I've got five minutes, which is perfect, actually. That works out. I've got five minutes left, um, which is just about right. Often on a coffee label. And if, I mean, if it's too obvious, sorry, uh, but I sometimes think just make it really obvious because like my brother-in-law is a vicar, but he's also a PhD scientist and on a Nobel award winning physics team. I still have to explain to him how to make a cafetiere of coffee well, like every time I see him, like, so you can be really smart. You just might not know about coffee yet. Do you know what I mean? It's like, so open up the information. So the farmer, often you'll see the farmer or the producer uh, will be at the top. I mean, you're going to be distracted by this coffee. As soon as you get this coffee, you'll be like, what the heck? Yeah, yeah, I mean, honestly, yeah. Um, so Felipe Arcila is the farmer, uh, the producer. Uh, Jordan de Eden, that sounds like I'm saying it in French, but it's supposed to be Spanish. That's the farm that Felipe and Carlos's brother, they specifically bought that farm uh, in order to grow really wacky coffee varietals there are different style, like there are grape varieties there are different varieties of coffee and like so like you might get your, your favorite sauvignon blanc or your pinot noir and um, different grape varieties it's the same with coffee you've got couture bourbon typica and these different varieties will have different flavors and there's new varieties coming out quite a lot felipe osila in quindio Often will be the region. So you'll have the region there will be part of the tasting notes, uh, part of the label of the coffee. That will be a farm. So he bought Jardin d'Eden to grow great coffee. And Pink Bourbon is a, a varietal of coffee. 
That's really, I've only known it for the last four years. That's as much as I, I don't know when it actually appeared on specialities as a, as a whole, but I've only known it for the last sort of four years. So that will be the varietal. So you might see different names like Bourbon, Couture, Couture, Gesher, all these sorts of names like that. That will be the variety of coffee cherry. Now, some farms have one specific varietal, like Pink Bourbon, and they've grown a certain amount of that coffee varietal. Or some might have a mixture of different, depends on what style they're going for or what they're doing. Um, but if it says one specific varietal, then that's what that bit is. And then this is the wacky bit. So have you, most of you got the, this coffee is quite divisive and it should be. We have a category of coffee that we call crazy horse, uh, rare and experimental. Although if you spot the deliberate spelling mistake on our stand, uh, you get a bonus brownie point. But um, rare and experimental coffees should be divisive. If everyone likes it, then there's nothing really experimental about it. Um, so could you taste the cinnamon? <laughs> what they've done, people like, so when they try the coffee, people think, oh, what have you done? What have you added cinnamon to it? Said, no, no, we haven't done that. That's, um, that's Felipe. So what they do is, so you know, like you saw pictures of Miriam's, uh, if we go back, oh, just there. So these are fermentation tanks. So after you've um, put the coffee cherries through a mill like this, all the coffee cherries, all the flesh of the coffee cherry will get hulled off. And if you imagine a coffee cherry with a seed that's still got the sticky bit on the outside, you imagine pulling the flesh off a coffee cherry, you still got sticky mucilage on the seed. If you imagine all that going to big tanks with this process, that's exactly what will have happened. But also then they've um, put in a tartaric starter. So they'll put in um, tartaric acid, basically, um, to start help the fermentation along uh, with, with, the, with the, the hulled coffee cherries. And then literally throw in cinnamon sticks into the fermentation tanks. Um, I just thought that was a little bit on the nose in terms of how they did it. But um, no, that's literally because cinnamon is not a naturally occurring flavor in coffee. You got peach, jasmine, strawberry pineapple, incredible flavors. You know, um, cinnamon is not one that is natural, but by infusing it at origin, they've created this whole, like, what is that? Reason I love this is because that is producers adding value themselves. They are deciding it's not us. We're the smart people going to the, you know, the poor farmers and buying their coffee and we're going to do the magic. They're doing the magic. Our job as roasters is to, is to not spoil it, <laughs> try and get it right. And then your job is to just enjoy it uh, and brew it. You know, that's, that's your bit. So that's where flavor comes from in lots of different ways. That's, that's sort of coming to land. Thank you very much. I uh, hope you enjoyed the coffees and uh, yeah, go nuts. Go nuts.